Welcome back to World Beat. I'm here with Miles Perilla talking all about uh, healthcare and all kinds of things in there. And Miles, I want to get into really what you've seen over the past couple of years because in my experience, I've seen so much talk around health policy, around healthcare solutions, everything like that. I swear, if I have to hear ivermectin one more time, my head's going to explode, man. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't even want to think about what an actual practitioner has to deal with that. But we've heard a lot of stories, and I think it's always important to highlight, though, that healthcare workers are people just like anybody else, and that you know they ain't, they ain't machines. It's it's a very it's a job that requires a lot of emotional investment. Um, and actually, there was a an article posted about uh, back in September, I think it was um, Washington State University Insider had it where they were following alumni who were now working in nursing units all over the country and what they had been experiencing. There was one person they talked to who's now down in uh, Tucson in Arizona who said, quote, personally, I'm just exhausted. I just came off a four day in a row, supposedly 12 hour shifts. And we all know how that goes. If I go to the bathroom one time at work, that's a good day. We just don't have time. It's horrible. I love nursing so much. Other than my wedding day and the birth of my children, nursing has given me the best days of my life and also the worst days of my life, unquote. Mm-hmm. And Miles, just as someone who has been on the inside, who has worked with all levels of management, I mean, what 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 have you seen inside the walls of these clinics during healthcare? What have some of your own experiences been, folks you've talked to, like, what um what's some of the inside scoop that you can give so you know it's 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 really a uh it's more complex than that you know when when covid started uh i i remember when i was in my previous role um we the first patient we got was uh i think it was 28th of february um uh 2020 and obviously everyone was scared everyone was um really hesitant to, to, to do anything extra or whatever. Everyone was gowned up and such. Actually our volumes drop, I think about 20% less than what we would see normally see. And this was February, March, April, you know, and in the whole summer, we saw a huge drop. Um, obviously not as much as when it just started because obviously it started at, you know, life center in Kirkland, Washington. And, uh, the volumes, so to speak, didn't spike back up till about, about March in uh, last year. And, and when it doubled in, obviously we started seeing a lot uh, more patients, including those um, COVID patients. But to answer your question, when it first started, we, it was more of the, the, um, the, the anticipation of something mysterious, of not knowing what to do, not knowing how to respond. And, and we had all, you know, we were ready. We had, you know, we had all the training that we thought we had. However, I would say the biggest challenge being in the front line back then was the ever-changing communication. Like, was it airborne? Was it like TB or was it a droplet? And what should we wear? And also then we had the, the, the challenge, challenges of not having enough mass and not having enough supply. And obviously the ever changing stance of CDC and, 
you know, um, or whoever wants to be an authority of that. And it was, um, that was the difficult part. And it was, it was confusing, um, obviously for us. And um, that's not even an understatement. And I would say that was the hardest part, the, the, the average, it was a changing uh, even in a few days, like less, you know, in, in one week, it would change like three, four different times. So that was the hardest part, I would say. Um, because the volumes were down. So we weren't that much as far as the busyness when it first started didn't really impact us as much because people were afraid to go to the ER. We, we actually, when it first started, we actually didn't see anyone with the flu. Um, and we, our trauma uh, numbers went down. Um, people were staying home. Uh, our pediatric volumes were down come March, um, that, because it was a whole year, right? People were not seeing their doctor and people were coming back sick because you have this all whole year or maybe, you know, almost a year that people who have chronic medical conditions did not see their doctor, did maybe did not fill their medications or manage their chronic medical conditions properly because they were afraid. So it was the fear that got to people that led them not to really take care of themselves that when they got back to the ER, um, they were sicker. And that was what we saw back in, you know, March 2021 um, and onward. And obviously, you know, we had the COVID patients and such. um, And that was a difficult part because when it spiked back up, it was a sharp increase. And we, there were positions that we were not able to fill. There are people who changed their careers or people who left and for different reasons. Um, and, and, you know, when it's, it didn't give us enough time to catch up on staffing back up. And, and obviously now it's a different challenge now because you have the COVID mandates and, and, you know, all that stuff that's affecting nurses in general or healthcare in general or the public in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was that was actually my next thought was um, like, how has that how has that changed over the course of it? Because I feel like just like the primary issues in the pandemic have changed. Has that also been reflected in healthcare settings in terms of what primary concerns are and what uh, nursing and leadership has to do? Like wh- what's been that evolution in your experience? Yeah, so definitely, you know, obviously I don't have the specific numbers to to it but there's definitely an increase now that i've you know um uh of covid patients but truly i think the biggest the the elephant in the room now is the staffing challenges uh it's it's really people that are you know because there are a lot of people who are even vaccinated getting covid you know um and they're out you know others got covid twice (laughs) you know even patients coming in who got vaccinated getting COVID. And, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's very interesting now that we have uh, nurses that um, have moved to different parts of the country, um, obviously who are not in, in residence with mandates and such, or others just lost their job or others just quit. Right. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting how um, different hospitals different nurses responded to this and you know it's it's has caused a lot of divide as far as you know different perspectives depending where you're from or where you're at and 
you know, it, it's, it's the staffing challenges are, are really impacting the delivery care and it's not just hospitals. It's everywhere. <laughs> no, there's no doubt. We've been hearing about, uh, especially in October, that was Stracktober, you know, it was the great resignation. These are terms that folks might have heard thrown around um, that refers to not just healthcare, but a bunch of industries, um, service workers, where it seems like one of the things the pandemic has really done is given folks a reckoning with their, their work situation and really evaluating, is this really something I want to put up with? Is this environment. I mean, it ain't even just about wages. I mean, you know, jobs are more than just your pay. It's also about is the, is it a toxic environment or not? Do I like my coworkers or not? (laughs) You know, it's like, you don't got to be tight with everybody, but, but, you know, we often hear all these things about, you know, high nurse and turnover. I mean, is that, does that ring true? Is that overblown? Like where, where is that in your experience? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely that there's definitely a high turnover. You know, um, there was a recent LinkedIn study or survey i trying to remember what month it was published but i just saw this uh i would say two three months ago um that the reason why uh healthcare workers wanted to not healthcare workers workers wanted to change industries it number one reason the respondents say i think it was 54 percent the respondents uh, responded that they want better pay better compensation the second reason was they want to work for organizations that are aligned with their values and the least reason why people want to switch industries is a risk for exposure in COVID. And, and yeah, and, and to me, that resonates with me because to be quite honest, even, you know, as, as a clinician, as a, as a nurse, having been through when this all started, you know, it, it's it, for to me, COVID is not what I worry. It's it's really about you know, will I be valued in an organization? Will I be valued? Um, and you know, obviously, compensation comes with it. Will I be valued where I would work? You know, I wanna I wanna work where I will be at my best, and no one's gonna micromanage me or or undervalue me. And I think that's what's happening now. And I think to your point on what you mentioned about the great resignation, I think we paint this doom and gloom so much that it's not really that bad. You know, I think people are moving where they want to move and I think we should let them. And I think organizations that need to rethink how they're attracting talent, you know, how they're, how they're treating their staff and for, for workers to be able to tune in on what do they really want to do? You know, Mm-hmm. And that's especially in, in healthcare where you have, I mean, I still get the, uh, the messages, emails and texts that, you know, come to uh, California or Washington and you get paid like 5,000 a week for, for a travel assignment in the ER. And, and yet I get a lot of, um, uh, you know, messages from my previous staff uh, for, to provide them a work reference because they're going on a travel assignment. So they're leaving their full-time job. They're going on a travel because, they, you know, if they're going to work really that hard, might as well get compensated really well, get valued really well, then be stuck in an organization where they don't fit in, 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 in that regard. Well, no doubt, no doubt. Now, we've already talked about nursing leadership. What role does that play in worker retention and how can that be improved if it is a factor? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. To me, it, it's it's a huge factor, right? Because especially now where there's so much turnover. So the role of a leader really is to 
uh, you know, uh, so you have your management and your leadership, right? The manager role is to be able to make sure that you have systems in place and logistics parts of things, you know, that they have their orientation straight, they have the equipment they need to do their job, you know, they have a process to to escalate concerns and such. From a leadership standpoint, there's never been a better time to emphasize on good leadership in in healthcare because this is you are dealing with a staff for burnout. You're dealing with uh, professionals who are undervalued, who who are are back then were treated as heroes. Now you know there others getting fired because they're not they're not wanting to be forced to get a medication or whatever. You need leaders that could really help, really tune into how we can work them as a team and help them really work together and collaborate more and 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 encourage them and motivate them to be the best they can be, be their authentic self and, and, and just let them, you know, shine, so to speak. And it's, it's, it's not a whole lot. There's not a whole lot of leaders right now, because right now you see a lot of managing, you see a lot of controlling, you see a lot of micromanaging and obviously because a lot of, a lot are in stress, a lot are, a lot are um, struggling, a lot are anxious, you know, so there's a tendency to, control processes to to control people but i think that only alienates people to leave <laughs> yeah i i think so and it reminds me of a uh an argument that's been made by the um financial columnist uh rana faruhar right she um she has a brilliant book called uh makers and takers which is yeah. not about healthcare specifically it's really just more about american business in general but she she points to a phenomenon of the rise of the professional manager, you know, the, the idea of like a, a managing degree from university, no disrespect out there to anybody who's got one. I don't mean it that way, but she said that what, what it can happen is that you end up having people who think like accountants who end up running organizations that have humans in them. And this strikes me from her argument as being more of like a C-suite type of thing, um, like up to that level, uh, I don't know how much it seeps into middle management, certainly at the healthcare level. But it strikes me that when that disconnect happens, when someone takes a an idea that like, hey, my workers are just chess pieces, I can move around on a board as I need, and not worrying about all the things that come with that. Could that be playing a part in this? I mean, it sounds like it, but how much does that work at the middle management level? Because again, this is something that I've seen and heard of more at like the administrative level well it depends on the organization really different organizations have different organization organizational cultures and also within organizations it also depends on the leaders uh, themselves right you have you have organizations that have leaders who are very uh, supportive with their team who are invested in developing their team I, I would see those um, organizations that would have a better turnover, I mean, a lesser turnover rate than those organizations who don't listen to their team. And, you know, obviously you have different philosophies and how to lead and all that. But, you know, ultimately, you know, one leader, and even in my experience, you can have one leader who have a lot of titles and credentials in the world, but then again, does not have the emotional intelligence to lead or to it's like that balance of you're compassionate but then you're holding people accountable right because you're you're there to produce an outcome 
that you're compassionate, but then you're holding them to a, a standard um, in at work. So that's that blend that we need. But then again, we have leaders who go overboard in one way or another, right? Which is not good. Uh, but then again, it also depends on um, the leaders above that or what they tolerate and what they allow. And obviously you've seen different, I mean, I'm not sure if you've seen a, um, a CEO fired, uh, I'm not sure if it was how many employees, uh, a lot, more than a hundred employees over zoom. <laughs> oh yeah. I remember that. I don't remember what company it was, but it, yeah, that headline read like a, like an onion article or something where I didn't even know if it was real. Right. That was crazy. Right. Mm hmm. And then flipping that around, like we mentioned earlier, when you have leaders who might have the clinical experience but lack the business acumen, what does that look like and how would that be addressed? So very good question. Um, again, it depends on the organization. There are organizations that have a uh, very good resource as far as leadership development. Um, and uh, there are others who uh, pair them with mentors. Let's say, for example, in my previous role, I was assigned to be a mentor to another leader who was new to her leadership management role. Uh, so that's one other strategy that other organizations do, which I find also effective. Um, the other piece of that too is that they send them to training, um, whether, you know, whatever, whether it's a, a homegrown program or a, uh, you know, well established program in that regard. And to me, that's when I, that's when I, really um, uh, built the or started the consulting program uh, because my method is is really not prescriptive it's it's really about discovering what the individual what the leader wants to 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 hone in but then how do you integrate that with the technical skills and also developing you know the the temperament the emotional intelligence of 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 being a leader like say how do you coach someone how do you give feedback how do you manage crucial conversations how do you lead a team who have a posting point of view especially now um you know how do you uh, achieve a common goal so in your business what are some strategies that you've implemented understanding as you've just said that organizations are different and uh you know there ain't going to be a one-size-fits-all solution you can write but just in your experience, what, what are some strategies that you found success with or that organizations have been able to implement for long-term success? Yeah. So it's really important to be able to have a good partnership with uh, the senior leaders because these are your decision makers of an organization of where they want to pivot the organization, right? So it's really important to, able, to be able to have that understanding or partnership with senior leadership on what do they want uh, with their team? Are they, and the second part of that is, are they aware of what the problems exist in the, in their organization or, or in their, you know, units in the, in a hospital, because you can't solve a problem uh, if no one knows about that, the problem exists. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's really important to have that alignment because change or transformation is not a, plug and play. I mean, that's not what I do. It's, 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 it's an investment. It's an investment on, in people. Um, you know, you're not just going to switch them to be a different 
type of leader after a program or whatever. It's really understanding, taking them to a journey and having a good assessment. You know, one of the, the best things that um, I've integrated, even in my practice, is to do a personality assessment on each specific leader uh, that is part of the program because it's, it's important to have self-awareness, first and foremost. For, this is for the leaders who are involved in the program. Um, to have a self a self assessment on what are their you know strengths, their opportunities, and sort sort of like a SWOT analysis. Where do they need to improve, and how do that how does that relate to their team? So you're aligning that with what type of leadership does your team need? Uh, obviously, there's no leadership style that works every time, right? It's mm-hmm. it's it's really adaptive, but at the very helm of it, it's really important to be able to to be, as they say, transformational. And what I mean by that is to be able to, to seek to understand what motivates your team, what's their understanding, how do, you, how do they understand um, what is expected of them, where they're at in, comparable, in, in comparative to what they, where they need to be, and how do, you lead them, how do you lead them in closing that gap? Because you can't sustain any change effort if they don't understand the why and they don't understand how this all relates to what they do on a daily basis. Um, but what I've seen as a struggle, which is a barrier in most organizations, is that a lot of organizations want quick results right away. And like I said earlier, it's not a plug and play. You know, you're investing in people. You, you got to invest in their development. Well, first, you got to right, hire the right leaders first and have the right structure, have the right communication plan and a pathway for them to be able to, to, you know, to get coaching, to get mentorship. Um, and as they develop their skill set. It sounds to me, I mean, correct me if I'm out of line on this, that a lot of what you're talking about is influencing culture, like a company culture in terms yeah. of what that ecosystem is. And because like, right. People are weird. I don't know if folks know that, <laughs> you know, yeah. we've, uh, and things like trust and building rapport. I mean, that's, that's a slow cooker job. That ain't something you crack out the Instapot for. Right. Right. As they, there's this, this famous adage that says culture eats strategy for breakfast. I want to talk about your podcast here, which is, um, which is really fascinating to listen to. Even I encourage listeners to check, check it out. Even oh. if you're not, even if you're not in the healthcare space, this is really something fascinating, these conversations you have here. And there's a lot of different folks that you talk to um, all the way from, uh, again, like nurse leaders to executives and everything in between. But where did the genesis for this come from? Um, and what, what have been some of your biggest takeaways in the conversations that you have had from your perspective as a host? Yeah, definitely. Thank you. You know, when this started, I really wanted to support other nurse leaders. When I resigned from my role as a nurse manager, I really saw the need of supporting other nurse leaders because we often hear in media or LinkedIn or wherever, you know, that nurses are burned out and all that. But what we often don't see is the burden that, uh, that is placed on the leaders themselves. And because they're not necessarily in the front line, they don't, they're, they're the, so to speak, heroes in the back end who's making things happen, <laughs> you know? Uh, but right. then again, they have 24-7 accountability of a department. Nurses can just clock out. But then that's what we often don't see. And 
there's a lot more, there, it's more detrimental for a unit or organization when you have a high turnover of nurse leaders, because every time you have a new nurse leader, it's a different style. It's a different method of leading, different method of running stuff in, in the department, which really impacts consistency and, and, you know, the outcome, you know, and, and, and that's why I saw the value of that. And the other part of that too, is that no one really has the time to go to, you know, a, a week long conference or, or whatever, like, how do you lead in time of, of COVID? I mean, although there are organizations out there, um, like, you know, like, like, you know, well-established, um, Ivy league schools, whatever, like, Hey, how do you lead this? And, you know, during, you know, change or whatever, but no one really has a time. I mean, especially now, even nurse leaders are being a clinician are, are because there's short staff. So the, for me, I saw the, the need on having a practical way to share insights amongst nurse leaders to learn on, you know, Hey, you've gone through that. This is how you've navigated that. And maybe other leaders can learn from it. It's really a practical way to share um, insights with other nurse leaders from an experiential standpoint rather than theoretical. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it, it reminds me a lot of the whole saying about referees in the Super Bowl, right? You know, a referee makes a good call. Nobody says nothing. It's only when they make a bad call that they become the lightning rod. <laughs> and uh, <Yeah. laughs> for, for nurse leadership, it sounds like a lot of the same thing, right? Where it's like, yeah, when, when everything's running smoothly, no one thinks to look behind the curtain. It's when everything breaks down that everyone starts snooping around. Right, right, right. That's true. <laughs> well, this is all very encouraging stuff, especially in a media climate that has emphasized the doom and gloom element so much. It's really good to hear that there is more nuance uh, in many of these clinics. And we spent a lot of time inside those clinic walls. I want to go outside of it for the next segment. That's where we're headed next on World Beat. Stick with us. Oh. 